The Way Out Podcast, Episode 17. It was only when I stopped drinking that I started to actually talk to my friends and my family about the nature of my drinking. And even the people who would get absolutely hammered with me didn't realize the extent. I remember, God, I remember we, we have clear bags for recycling. And some weeks, my recycling bags would be just, they'd be bags and bags and bags of them. And I remember hiding those bags, you know, next door, or hiding some, thinking, right, I'll put those out next week. I'm not putting all of these out this week. <laughs> I would just, I'm like, oh, because I knew, I knew what I was doing, and I knew that if people walked past my recycling, they'd be like, Jesus, what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> That's, that is absolutely hilarious and sad, but it, that was the way it was for me. My garbage man knew I had a problem. Welcome. Thank you for joining us on this week's installment of The Way Out, sharing stories from people just like you who have recovered from alcoholism and other addictions. The Way Out does not speak on behalf of, nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization. Our purpose is to share with you, one episode at a time, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. The Way Out is sponsored by Transitions Daily. Would you like to receive the most popular AA daily devotions free in one distribution? Transitions Daily delivers daily devotions from 24 hours a day, AA thought for the day, daily reflections, big book quote, just for today, as Bill sees it, plus more. You can get our distribution daily via email, private Facebook group, or Twitter. Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Make sure to check out the new official blog of The Way Outcast at www.wayoutcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at The Way Out Podcast. Help us get the message out that lifelong recovery from alcoholism and addiction is possible by giving us a five-star rating on Stitcher and iTunes and following us on Twitter. And don't forget to tell your friends about The Way Out Podcast. The Way Out Podcast is on now. I'm your host, Charlie L. This week, we'll hear the experience, strength, and hope of Esther Nagel and how the practice of yoga helped her recover from drug and alcohol addiction. Esther, Thank you so much for joining the Way Out podcast. I am honored to have you. Thank you. It's really lovely to be here. It's really, I'm honored to be here. Thank you. You bet. You bet. So tell our podcast, our Way Out cast uh, uh, listeners where you're from and a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm from South Wales in the UK. I live in a, a very small valley called the Ronza Valley. It's a very beautiful place when the sun is shining. It's it's a bit grey and cloudy at the moment, but um, I'm surrounded by beautiful hills, which I love to walk in. And so it, it's a lovely place. Um, I'm a single mum. I've got three amazing sons, two of which are grown up. One is living in France. One is in university studying physics. And my little one is six and a half and is completely obsessed at the moment with Pokemon and Minecraft. So my <laughs> days are kind of consumed by Pokemon and Minecraft these days. 
I can relate. I have a 12-year-old who is uh, equally obsessed with Pokemon and <laughs> Minecraft. So uh, as, as far as we are away from each other, uh, clearly uh, we, have, uh, us, uh, we have more in common than, uh, uh, than we think. So tell me a little bit about you know, uh, uh, your journey uh, that got you. Uh, you know, I want to be able to talk about a little bit about how it was, you know, and you know, the life that you lived prior to finding sobriety and finding recovery. So tell me a little bit about that, uh, uh, that part of your life. Yeah, okay. Well, um, gosh, going back, I mean, I'm going back a long time now. As I said, I'm 43 years old, so my story's got quite a few years behind it. Um, I started drinking, uh, and when I, I started drinking, I first had my first drink when I was about 16, uh, and discovered that it made me feel a lot more confident than I had ever been before. I, I grew up with fairly low self-esteem and low confidence, and... Um, didn't really feel like I fitted in anywhere so having alcohol made me give me that oh I can relax now I can be more confident and and it was just something that I did at weekends and it was fun and it was you know there was nothing more than fun then um I started using as well then alcohol became a substitute for friends which was quite worrying when I went to university and I was a single mum with a small child and I was a long way from home, a long way from my friends, and I was really lonely. And I remember going to the shop one night and thinking, if I buy a bottle of wine, then I can pretend I'm back with my friends, drinking wine with my friends. And I actually, I remember that thought process. That was the first time I substituted alcohol for friends, which I think was a turning point for me. It was the first time I started drinking alone. And I did it. A lot then after that once I kind of broken that seal <laughs> it was what I did you know most nights I mean I, I did a degree I, I was training to be a, a school teacher um, elementary school I think you would call it a primary school we call it here I was training to be a teacher but I was spending most nights getting drunk getting stoned sitting up until really late you know in my lost in my misery um, because even though I was succeeding in university, I still, I still thought I was fairly worthless. I got a good degree, even though I actually wrote every single piece of work I submitted in some kind of altered state, and I actually thought that it improved my intellectual ability. <laughs> Amazing I, how we think that. I know. I, I remember once, I remember I tried, I decided, no, this is ridiculous. I shouldn't be writing my essays with a pint of cider and a joint I shouldn't be doing this I don't I'm gonna write one essay completely straight and I couldn't do it because <laughs> you know I had this story was so strong in my head that I needed I needed those things to help me write that I actually couldn't do it so every essay I submitted I was in some way altered and I've often wondered if I'd actually been able to get over that what would I I, I got a good degree would I have been able to get a better degree if I hadn't but yeah, we'll never know. No. Um, so I, after I got my degree, I didn't manage to get any work in teaching. And I ended up moving back home, back to where I grew up, ostensibly for a few months while I kind of regrouped and got myself back together um, after the stress of my degree. 
that was in 2002. And guess where I am? <laughs> I'm still here. I haven't left. Um, I've moved around the valley quite a lot, but I'm still here because I've got family here and I've got friends here. So it's been quite, you know, I've got my comfort zone here. Um, but my drinking carried on. And in fact, it escalated as I was here because... I mean, there's a big part of me was really unhappy about being here. My social circle revolved around drinking and smoking. And, you know, that was that was my social life. I, I, I didn't really know how to relate to people who didn't drink to excess. Um, you know, if somebody didn't like getting absolutely smashed, I really couldn't be their friend. I didn't know how to be friends with those kinds of people. So obviously my social circle entirely consisted of people who drank like I did. So I thought it was kind of normal. Um, but then in, in, I mean, I had lots of, there were lots of times when I kind of, I, you know, I knew that what I was doing was wrong. I knew that I shouldn't be drinking the way I was drinking. But at no point did I ever put my hand up and say, hey, I need help here. You know, one of the things you said that I think really resonates with a lot of us who have been in that place in our lives where we are in a, you know, in an addictive or alcoholic state. And the first time I drank, I very much felt the same way as you did. This is this is kind of it. This this makes me feel like I think I should feel this allows me to escape not only the world but myself and I didn't really even when I was alone I wasn't in a in a good place because I didn't like being with myself you know and so alcohol and drugs allowed me that freedom and they did for me what I could not do for myself and it was just a it, it became absolutely in the beginning a wonderful experience that i indulged in to excess every single time i did it but i didn't do it every day in the beginning of course and you know i was having fun but at some point just like you so eloquently said in your story it it becomes uh, it becomes something other than it was in the beginning, and it starts yeah. to, and it really starts to uh, dominate your life in a way that you could have never predicted in the beginning. Did you, you sensed that, uh, you know, at some point that it was a problem, um, uh, and how did that come about to you? Because you're with friends that drink like you do, so mm. it doesn't really seem that unusual. You talk about these little uh steps that you take that you think well i'm not going to ever drink alone and i think i always told myself that well you know if you drink alone that's not good right and then i drank alone and Mm -hmm. did you find yourself going down that path where you were starting to sort of cross lines that you thought to yourself that you would never cross oh god years and years ago yeah i mean that 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 drinking alone thing you know that was a huge one I remember when I was in my very early 20s talking to a friend of mine and we were talking or she was she was talking about her concerns then over my drinking and that was even before it really you know it was probably it was beginning to be problematic then um, because it was starting to have big impacts on my life and 
I remember us talking about the fact that, you know, I only ever drink when I'm with our crowd. I only ever drink when I'm with friends. And as long as I'm not drinking alone, I'm fine. Um, but then, yeah, when I crossed that line when I was 24, and 24 or 25, 25 probably, um, I crossed that line and I didn't even, I mean, I remember it. I remember that thought process really quite clearly so it, it stayed in my mind it it obviously made an impact on me somewhere I think it's only in the last couple of years that I've actually gone back and looked at it again um but yeah I crossed that line and then it was things you know oh well I'm only drinking on certain nights right and as long as I'm not drinking on a Monday night right and then all of a sudden I was drinking on a Monday night as long as I'm not drinking at lunchtime it's okay and then I'm doing that and right. as long as I'm not drinking you know before I've even had lunch and there were times when I would do that and then it became not not all the time because obviously I was a single mum and so it would be when I had weekends free I would be with my one of my best friends who was sort of like he was my well i'm not as bad as him guy. <laughs> yeah we need that person we need that person in our lives yeah. because but, would we become the worst right yeah yeah but when you know when we were together very often we would start i mean there was one night i remember when it was just a weird weird night and i didn't really sleep i slept a little bit but i woke up at six o'clock in the morning in a bit of a, a bit agitated about some of the things that had happened the night before. And I started drinking at six o'clock in the morning. Yeah. That was a big line crossed for me. And I, I've not, I, I think it was only that time I ever did that. But that was huge because then, of course, by lunchtime, I was absolutely, I mean, I could barely get myself home. I was in such a state. But I crossed that. I crossed every single line I, I drew in my life. I crossed them all. And, and yeah. I did similar <laughs> things, right? And so when you talk about that for me it was i started crossing these lines that i told myself i was not going to cross and i started doing these things that i promised to myself that i wasn't going to do and i would say well you're okay so long as you don't do x or you're okay if you don't do y but then i would do x like drink alone or drink on a monday and a tuesday and a wednesday and a Thursday, and you're okay, and I have kids too, and they would be with their mom, you're okay so long as you only drink to oblivion when the kids aren't around. Mm -hmm. And then it starts creeping into that part of it. And for me, it was a Jekyll and Hyde kind of thing. As long as the rest of the world didn't know what I was doing, then I could keep up this facade like it wasn't actually really happening. As long as nobody saw me continually drinking every night into oblivion, then it was okay because I could try to keep up this facade that I really wasn't uh, uh, an alcoholic or I didn't have a drinking problem or I wasn't an addict. And it becomes so difficult to keep up that Jekyll and Hyde life because not only does it feel extraordinarily duplicitous, and I felt as if I was fake because I wasn't and I wasn't authentic because I was hiding this big part of myself and I was denying my to myself that I had a problem, which again felt like I was not being authentic and truthful to myself. So there was this incredible uh, pain that came with trying to 
manage that addiction and to make sure that nobody knew about it. Can you identify with that? Yeah, absolutely. I, what was really weird and, and, and quite, I was really shocked by was when I stopped drinking. It was only when I stopped drinking that I started to actually talk to my friends and my family about the nature of my drinking. And even the people who would get absolutely hammered with me didn't realize the extent. I remember, God, I remember we, we have clear bags for recycling. And some weeks, my recycling bags would be just, they'd be bags and bags and bags of them. And I remember hiding those bags, you know, next door or hiding some, thinking, right, I'll put those out next week. I'm not putting all of these out this week. <laughs> I would just, I was like, ah, oh, because I knew, I knew what I was doing, and I knew that if people walked past my recycling, they'd be like, Jesus, what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> That's, that is absolutely hilarious and sad, but it, that was the way it was for me. My garbage man knew I had a problem, but... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, the garbage man knew that there was a serious issue afoot. Yeah, mine probably did too. <laughs> I wrote um I wrote a blog post of right at the start of my, my recovery and somebody commented on it saying I think my garbage men thought I died when I stopped drinking. <laughs> yes. Which I thought yes. they probably did. <laughs> right. I think all how can you drink that much that no, that can't be for one person. They must be having a big party every night. Every day, yes. <laughs> I can absolutely relate with that, Esther. So tell me a little bit more about what got you to that point. We all get to this point if we're fortunate enough to be able to recover, that we get to a point of desperation, a turning point. We get to a point where we can no longer continue to live this life, this Jekyll and Hyde life, this life where we're continually trying to escape ourselves and life itself. And what used to be an escape has now become a prison. What used to be the answer to all our problems has become the root of all of our problems. And it's such... A, an amazing twist that happens when we get into the throes of our addiction, this one thing that was supposed to make us feel okay and make life okay and make the world okay, now is the reason it's not okay. How yeah. did that manifest in your life? Well, it was, it was quite, this is quite interesting. It took, <laughs> it took an awfully long time. It was, 2013 was my kind of break through year. Um, from the start of 2013, I had lots of different things happening. I had um, lot, very, huge insecurity in the place I was working and massive amounts of stress around my job. And I was breaking up with my... Oh, I think I'd already broken up with my father's son at that point, but he was still living with me, so I had a lot of stress there. Um, that got incredibly nasty, which, you know, I'm sure you can imagine okay. how pleasant that could be. When you're separated from somebody, but they're still living with you. Um, there was also uh, things going on in my family. My mum had cancer, and that obviously put an awful lot of pressure and stress and worry onto me. Another family member, we discovered that he'd been hiding an addiction, an alcohol problem. 
from us for years. And he was kind of going into free fall quite spectacularly. There were suicide attempts. There was real huge amount of really scary stuff going on there. And that was difficult because I was trying to, yeah, you know, I was trying to be there for the family. And at the same time, I was having this huge mirror being held up to me that was saying, do you know who this could be? <laughs> <laughs> this could actually be you. And why isn't it you? And there was a lot of, you know, this should be me. I've been doing this as well. Why is this not me that's falling apart here? Um, and so I had all of this stuff going on. And then I switched to a new job. And the stress, and just it just got so much for me, too much for me. And there was a moment when I'd... I'd I'd been on a training course for a few days with this new job and I come back and I was really excited about the new job because although I felt quite out of my depth but I thought this is going to be amazing this this huge potential here this is going to be brilliant only I couldn't sleep and I was sitting on the doorstep of my house having a smoke and having a drink and being a little bit agitated and a little bit wired and I was listening to what was at the time my favourite album, which is the latest album, still the latest album, from Queens of the Stone Age. Ah, oh, Queens, Queens of the Stone Age. God bless you. Love Queens of the Stone Age. The last but one track on Like Clockwork, their the last album, is called I Appear Missing. And I had been completely and utterly obsessed with that song for months. Completely. I was playing it on loop and over and over and over again. And this one night, I was actually listening to the word, and I had a real, like, holy shit, this song is about me. <laughs> and I thought that was exactly, I don't know if you, if you know, if you know the song, he's talking about being almost, like, separate from your life and that you don't quite know where you are. It completely and utterly lost. And I suddenly realised that that was probably the reason why that song had got under my skin so much was because it was actually where I was. In my life, I was, I was, I felt completely separated from everything that was going on around me. And that really knocked me sideways, realizing that. And um, about two weeks after that, I just kind of surrendered to this breakdown and I gave up my job. And I basically spent then the next couple of months going completely crazy, drinking and drinking and drinking and drinking and doing mad things. And then I sort of thought, right, I can't carry on like this. I need to do something different with my life. I need to change my life. And I need to be able to earn money. I need to have something. I can't just not work because I had two children at home then. Um, and so I thought, right, I wanted to do yoga teacher training for ages. Now might be a really good time. I think I need, uh, I need a way of earning a living that will enable me to be calmer. So I found... The first yoga teacher training course that this teacher had ever put on was starting a few months later. It's as if she was waiting for me. <laughs> I've always thought that she was waiting for me to be ready. Um, and so I started, I, I enrolled on that course. And just making that decision, making that commitment to enroll on that course shifted something in my head. And from the January, that course was starting in the April, and in the January, I woke up on New Year's Day, I had a horrible, horrible hangover on New Year's Day, I had a horrible night, it was all awful, and I thought, right, if I'm going to be a yoga teacher, I need to cool myself down, 
I'm going to stop drinking in the week. Or I think it was, I'm going to stop drinking on my own. So I made a real, and I made, I told my son, who was about 16 or 17 at the time, I told him I was going to stop drinking on my own. And so I made that commitment to him as well. And I think that was, that was important. If I kept it to myself, I'd never have stuck to it. Right. But I did stick to that. I did engin- probably engineered more ways to drink in company, but I stopped drinking alone. And that was a huge, that was huge for me. So then in the April that training started, and I started to learn new ways to relax that I'd never encountered before. I started to you know, learn breathing techniques and learn coping strategies that could help me deal with the problems that I'd always turned to alcohol to deal, to deal with, <laughs> hide from. And I, I learned that actually problems don't go away when you hide from them, that you know, <laughs> deal with them, then That's they true. go away. Um, and gradually, I just found myself really uncoiling and really letting go of a lot of stuff. I had to do a lot of um, self-reflection and, and really going back into my past and really digging deep into myself. And I was I was able through writing these essays to see lots of patterns of behaviour that would go back to my childhood. So instead of looking at my behaviour as something that was a result of me being a bad person, I could look and see, well, actually, all these things came together to mean that I was this vulnerable at this point in my life. I was, you know, I, I, I lots of isolation and lack of connection and, and all of those things that we know are fairly common triggers for addiction. You know, I was, I was, I was, kind of probably a textbook vulnerable case um, in an awful lot of ways. So I was able to kind of make peace with the fact that I had this addiction and with the past that had taken me there. And then as one morning on October the 12th, 2014, I woke up with the worst hangover I had ever experienced in my entire life. I honestly thought I was dying. I was in such pain. I could barely open my eyes. I could hardly move without wanting to throw up and collapse on the floor in tears. And I just thought, this isn't worth it. I don't need this anymore. I don't need to hide anymore. I've got yoga. I've got all these coping strategies now, and I don't need it. I feel better when I don't drink. I feel happier. I can certainly move when I don't drink, so why am I doing this to myself? And then I decided, right, I'm not going to drink next weekend. And I just, for a few weeks, I just kept telling myself, I'm not going to drink next weekend. I'm not going to drink for another seven days, another seven days. That's all it is, is another seven days. And then slowly I realized that I wasn't drinking anymore and I didn't actually want to drink anymore. And um, the rest is history, really. I, uh, I just enjoyed my sobriety ever since. We'll take a short break from Esther and continue our Recovery Revealed series on emotional sobriety. Perhaps the most literal manifestation of emotional sobriety in my recovery journey thus far is a mantra I repeat to myself aloud so often it has been indelibly imprinted on my recovering mind. I don't have to act the way I feel. One of the definitions of emotional inebriety is to be ruled by one's emotions, as I absolutely was during my active addiction and alcoholism. I always acted the way I felt because... Looking back, I didn't have any other way of dealing with those emotions other than to act on them 
or hit the proverbial eject button on those emotional time bombs by drowning them in alcohol or chemicals. Neither path brought about anything resembling peace or harmony with the emotional roller coaster I allowed myself to ride for the better part of 20 years. While sitting in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous at about nine months of sobriety, I heard a gentleman proclaim one of the greatest gifts he's received in the program was to learn that he had to act his way into right thinking instead of think his way into right acting. That profound piece of wisdom landed on me like a time bomb of enlightenment as I at once realized that my emotions need not be the catalyst for my actions. And in fact, I can experience an emotion and choose how to act. I need to acknowledge the emotion, identify it if I'm able, and then I can choose to do something distinctly different. If I'm feeling down, I don't need to wallow in it and let it engulf me. I can write a gratitude list, help someone in the smallest of ways, call a friend, or play with my dog, Louie. If I sense anger is rising up, I can again acknowledge, identify, and choose the right action. Indeed, we're not responsible for our first thought. We are responsible, however, for our first action. Recovery has given me the precious gift of freedom from the bondage of emotional turmoil, only to the extent that I'm willing to continually practice emotional sobriety in my daily life. Now back to part two of Esther Nagel's interview. It's amazing because I feel like a lot of what you went through with your experience as you hit that gift of desperation and you realized you just couldn't go on like you had been going on, that's that surrender. And that's so analogous with uh, those of us who are in a 12-step program. We surrender to our disease, and that's step one. So I'm thinking about your story, and I'm listening to your story and how you begin your process of recovery. And I'm hearing step one, and then I'm hearing step two, and then I'm hearing, you know, Four and five, I'm hearing when you go back and you look at your patterns of behavior and you realize that it's not because you're a bad person, but because you just didn't have the right coping mechanisms from yeah. the outset. And it's not it's not a failing. It's not a moral failing. It's not a it's not because you're defective. It's yeah. because you didn't have the tools that you needed in order to cope with life successfully. And so, you know, we all have this story of recovery, and it's amazing to me that though you're not working a a traditional 12-step program, there's so many ways to recover, and there's so many ways to be able to get to a place where we have those uh, coping tools that we can use in order to be able to deal with life as it comes along and not have to hit that eject button anymore and not have to medicate and not have to escape. And that's beautiful. And I, I think that yoga is such a spiritual thing. And there's that spiritual component that, that the 12 steps has, right? That spiritual piece that we need to be able to connect to in order to connect to something that's greater than ourselves. What is that like in yoga, in a practice of yoga? Tell me about the spiritual piece. 
Well, I mean, you get. It's funny that you should talk. You're talking about the task staff because I, I, I will answer your question now. But I just wanted to say this: that I went to a conference last year that was organised by um, uh, there's a university in in Chester which looks at um, addiction recovery and from the spiritual aspect. And this conference was all about twelve step programs and whether they successful or how they work and it was fascinating two days and one of the things that really struck me which I hadn't known at that point was the similarities and when I started thinking about my writing a book the first the first idea that I had was actually to do a comparison and to sort of write you know how different aspects of yoga correlate to the 12 steps because they they do they absolutely there is there is so every Every one of the 12 steps, there's elements that I could bring into, you know, that I could talk about the yoga, yoga journey. So there is, there's, there's a fun, it is, there's such a phenomenal crossover between the two things. But in terms of the, the, the spiritual dimensions of yoga, well, yoga is, the, the, the point of yoga, and I mean, Western eyes think yoga is a physical thing or it's about meditating and that, that's it, but Yoga is actually, um, it's about helping us, it's about taking us to a point in our soul's evolution where we can actually really connect on a really deep level with the divine in whatever way you connect to a divine sort of entity. Um, and it, it's not just about what we do with our body and it's not just about what we do with our, you know, in our meditative practices. It's about how we behave. It's about how we speak to ourselves. It's about how we think, how we interact with the world. And so it's about becoming the best kind of human that you can be so that you can evolve spiritually. It is entirely, it's connecting the self as in our soul, not even just about me, Esther Nagel, in this body, but my soul, with the the higher self, which is which is God, divine universe, however you choose to define divinity, um, and it's about you know connecting with our own personal divinity, which we all we are all part of the greater you know, divine. And however you choose to interpret that, we still are part of, we are part of this phenomenal thing that is creation. And so yoga helps you to really connect to that and to give, and what I think, I think this is one of the ways in which it helped me because I, I had a real issue with religion. Um, I was raised going to church, but then when I was young, I, I, I asked questions that my priest couldn't answer told me he couldn't answer and I lost I thought well if you can't answer that I don't believe a word of what you told me and I just at 12 years old I absolutely lost the faith that I'd been raised with and so then nothing replaced that and I didn't know how to talk about this big gap that I obviously had in my life which I replaced with alcohol and rock music and casual sex and you know and all those of other not very helpful behaviors um and then when i started really going deep into yoga it gave me the ability to understand that i could be a spiritual person without needing that religious aspect that's a that's a huge huge uh, value that you brought to the table 
when it comes to a higher power, when it comes to, you know, and for me, similarly at age 12, my mom died of cancer and I had decided at that point that I wanted nothing to do with a God that mm-hmm. would allow that to happen to somebody, to anybody. And I had made that decision. We're done. We're good. If this is what God is and this is how the, the things he allows to happen, I'm going to do this thing on my own. And very much like you, enter drugs, enter alcohol, enter, uh, you know, uh, um uh, women and and, and 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 using relationships and sex to try to fill that void, that God-sized hole that I had in my life, and I did. I had that God-sized hole, and I tried to fill it with everything, everything but God, until I was able to get that gift of desperation, which allowed me to surrender, as you talked about, and then be able to start to not search, not not. It was amazing because I didn't create a God. I didn't, I didn't, it's not the God of my church that I grew up. I grew up Catholic. It's not that God, but it is a God that I've decided that I'm open to trying to get a better understanding of through the practice of uh, continued spiritual um, encounters, I would say, you know, prayer and meditation and like you said, connecting with that higher self, that higher power, whatever that means to you from a personal standpoint, I'm almost two years sober and I have just a very small concept of what my higher power is today. And I, and I, and I call him God, the God of my understanding, but I only know that when I pray, my life is good. When I am centered and I do my uh, uh, my meditations, then my life goes better. When I try to live in a way that is consistent with what I think is the will of my higher power, my life goes better. So there's that proof, right? I started just that experiment, maybe like you did with yoga. I'm going to do this experiment. I'm going to see what happens. And there's other people that are doing this and their lives are good and they're happy. And it's manifesting in a beautiful way in these people's lives. I'm going to do those things too and see how that works for me. And it started working in my life and I started feeling better. I I felt a purpose. I felt more fulfillment, more peace, more ease, more security, more things that I have felt, you know, I don't, I didn't think I'd ever feel this way. I don't feel peaceful all the time. I am not, um, definitely not a spiritual master by any stretch, <laughs> but I do get pockets of it and I never got that before ever. So, um, I think that's a, a an amazing parallel between the, uh, uh, the 12 steps and yoga and uh, I want to talk about your book because you said you wanted to initially maybe write your book about a comparison between yoga and the 12 steps, which I think would be amazing, by the way. Yeah, I think that would be yeah. so cool. I think I think and, and the more that I'm I mean, I'm, I'm sort of in Facebook groups now, recovery groups, and, and I'm learning a little bit more about the 12 steps. 
because what stopped me doing that was actually thinking I don't know the first thing about this right. other than what I can read online right. and, and not really feeling like I was in the position to be able to write a book with any kind of authority talking about the 12 steps so it is definitely you know there I think there is there's I know that there's other work being done around yoga and the 12 steps but I could bring my own slant to it and I think that that is definitely one that will probably happen in the future. Because the way I envisage the book, I think it could be a really good read. <laughs> yes, yes, I really do. I really think that there's so many parallels between the two that it would be amazing. And it would be great from a, a perspective that's outside the 12 steps, because I know that uh, yoga has been integrated in some 12-step practices, but that is from the view definitely of you know, that 12-step view and then sort of sprinkling in the yoga, right? Yeah, it would yeah. be amazing to see, you know, draw those parallels from a, uh, from a yoga practitioner and being able to, because I think that's relatable to people. I think sometimes that, you know, 12-step programs certainly can carry some sort of some, uh, a bit of social stigma, right? Um, uh, around the 12 steps and uh, um, from an outsider's perspective to be able to lend that insight and those parallels and and potentially you know uh, even destigmatize the the, uh, the the 12 steps to a certain extent mm. yeah I think it would be helpful to take the um, the idea of it's all about God out of it because that was what one of the main things that put me off when right. I I would have always, I always, well, I can't go there because I'm not going to surrender to a God. I'm right. not going to do that. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> my only, I, I had similar issues with God as well that you talked about. My brother died when he was 30 and he'd wanted to be a priest. And so I, the only conversations I've had with God since I was 12 have been unrepeatable on a broadcast. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have spent many, yeah. many hours screaming and swearing right. at God that I claim not to even believe in. Right. Right. Yeah. Many, many arguments with God. So, you know, I didn't want to have anything to do with anything that I thought was based on that God. Right. I thought that that was what it was. So I think that, you know, I think it would be good to, to, to really get people, for people to really understand that it isn't necessary. So you don't have to actually surrender to God. No. It's, no. And that is that is something that I think the twelve step needs to get out there a bit more, um, because I might have gone. But then I I, I went down my own path. So and, and, yeah. and that was the path that you needed to take. And yeah. I think ultimately yeah. for me, um, it was great to be able to be at that point where I didn't even think about that at the beginning because I was so you know out of my head that it wasn't even, uh, uh, and I had been exposed, to, I had tried, you know, the 12 steps many times before, but I was at a point where I just, I, I had surrendered, and the good news is, is that I had this great sponsor who said, you know, you don't have to worry about what this thing is, you don't have to worry about any of it, all you have to do is just, just in the beginning, just say to yourself there's a there's a potential that there's something greater than me that can help me that's all that was the smallest of smallest of smallest beginnings that i just had to entertain the fact that there might be a power greater than myself that could help me yeah you know that's it 
And it started from there. And then, uh, you know, in step three, I had to surrender my will. And, and it wasn't sort of, it, it sounds, it's sort of worse than it is, right? Like you have to surrender to this, you know. But ultimately, I just, the, the surrender was, I'm going to do what he's doing and I'm going to pray and we'll see what happens. And then I'm going to meditate and I'll see what happens. And then I'm going to do, so it's much more of a process rather than this, you know, sort of, because I always thought it was sort of like the born again Christian deal. Right. And, um, <laughs> and, and, you know, and I think that, you know, that works for some people, but for me, I could not do that. I could yeah. not do that. That, that was not going to happen. And so for me, it was much more of a, and as I talk to more people in the 12, in, in 12 step uh, work, they, it, it's much more uh, of a spiritual experience that's of the educational variety, not the great white light variety. Yeah. Nine, I haven't met one person yet in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous that has experienced the big white light. You know, it is definitely more of the educational variety where I work through the 12 steps and I start to change as I work through these 12 steps and something changes inside of me. And when I start to engage this power that I don't understand yet, but I start to try to, and I start to try to engage it, I change, right? And that's the biggest thing I think I've learned about the God of my understanding is that he doesn't change the God of my understanding. And I don't know if it's a man or a woman. I'm probably a woman, but I haven't decided that yet. And I don't know if I ever will. Um, yeah, and it doesn't matter. Uh, but, but the God of my understanding doesn't change the world around me. Bad stuff still happens. You know, uh, the world is the same, but the God of my understanding changes me. Yeah. And by virtue of the God of my understanding changing me, then the world changes. Yeah. Because what I reflect out to the world gets reflected back to me. Yeah, yeah. And that's the miracle to me. That yeah. is the miracle. Yeah, yeah. It's like um, uh, 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 living with gratitude changes the world because you suddenly start to see better good things happening in your world rather than focusing on negative things all the time and only ever seeing the negative. It's, uh, what you... What you what you are is what you get. That's right. So tell me about your book. I want to, uh, as we as we wrap up the interview, tell me about your book and uh, how can people get it? What is it about? And uh, yeah. So, so my book is called "Bent Back into Shape: Beating Addiction Through Yoga." So, "Bent Back into Shape" is the title, and the subtitle is "Beating Addiction Through Yoga," and it's 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 kind of it's partly my story, and it's partly how this can be your story. It's kind of a self-help book with, you know, my story, but it's how I got to recovery through yoga. So it goes back to, there's a whole chapter about my relationship with God um, because that is so significant. And uh, um, so, yeah, there's, there's lots of practical stuff. There's, there's um, you know, I go quite deep into yoga philosophy, not, not, Deep, deep, as in, you know, I'm not writing a, a really in-depth, um, very academic. It's very accessible. It's very readable. Um, but I, there is, I cover a lot of yoga philosophy. So I'm not just looking at the practice, the physical practices. I'm looking at the 
um, how we can modify our behavior, how we can change our thoughts. I talk a lot about gratitude because that is hugely important, um, I think, to making our lives better is to start from, right, this is where I am now and I am hugely grateful for where I am now. And now let's take this forward. So it's, it's, it's very, um, you know, it is very honest. There's a lot that got taken out of it because it didn't need to be in a book that was going to be read by complete strangers. <laughs> but I have, um, I have shared, you know, quite openly my failings, my lessons that I've learned, who I was, where I was, and shared my journey in quite a lot of detail. So, you know, the, my little brother actually, and my mum, they've both read it. I don't know who else in my family has, but my little brother, who is one of my best, best friends, he's talked about how he's learned stuff about me that he never knew before because I've shared stuff in the book that I've never been able to talk about before. So, you know, you get to know me really well and you also get to know yoga in ways that you might not have previously known yoga. And there are practical tips as well around... Um, I talk about breath quite a lot because um, good breathing is, is paramount. So I go into quite a lot of detail about the breath and relaxations. And there is also um, some bonus material available on my website as well. There's, um, and there's a link in the book that so you can sign up to get more information, practical videos and downloads. Um, and, and then it ends with just a roundup of a few blog posts that are on my website, but I just sort of put them in the back as well for a bit of added value. But I've been told it's, it's a very good book. Um, it's been edited a little bit recently and um, trimmed up a little bit because I wrote it very quickly in May to, to release in uh, India when I went to speak in a conference in India. So I wrote the bulk of it in a week. <laughs> So it needed a little bit of tidying up. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a week. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's um, yeah. impressive. I had a lot of it already written, but yeah, it was quite, that was a very, a very challenging week. <laughs> when at one point I was nearly in tears crying to my editor, I can't do this, I can't do this, but I did it. So it was a great lesson in what I am actually capable of when I put my mind to it and stay focused, which is, is a good lesson to have learned. So it's available at the moment on Amazon um, worldwide. So wherever your listeners are, they can get it. It's available in K on Kindle and in print. Um, and yeah, it's. I would. I would um, be really pleased if people would buy. I think at the moment as well. I don't know if it's the same worldwide, but in the UK, it's available as part of the. Um, Kindle Unlimited. Yeah, limited deal. Yeah. It's probably, that's, that's probably worldwide. I can't remember that. Yeah, it is. Yep, we definitely have that here. And so yeah. I encourage anybody who is interested in uh, yoga and recovery and how yoga and addiction recovery can be achieved, definitely go out to Amazon.com. The book is called Bent in to shape, bent back into back, shape, bent back into shape, and it's by Esther Nagel. Esther, I so appreciate your time. I appreciate uh, everything that you've shared, and uh, uh, you can be sure that you have a friend in the Way Out podcast. We will be 
um, uh, uh, we will be ed- uh, producing the podcast and we will be promoting your book right along with it because I think it's an amazing thing. Anything that has recovery and can help people understand that there is indeed a way out and it's not all the same for all of us, but there is a way out. And uh, uh, so again, uh, go to Amazon.com and get the book either in print or in Kindle form, Bent Back Into Shape by Esther Nagel. Esther, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for being a part of The Way Out, where we share stories from people just like you who have recovered from alcoholism and other addictions. If you would like to reach out to the show, you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com. That's wayoutcast, all one word, dot com. Or drop your host a friendly email at share at wayoutcast.com. There you can also find links to previous episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podcast Garden. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the podcast, contact me at share at wayoutcast.com. See you next time. And remember, if you don't change, your sobriety day will.